Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, I'm joined by Carter Malloy, CEO and founder of AcreTrader.com, a site where you can easily invest in farmland. Prior to breaking out on his own, Carter spent five years at a long short hedge fund and over seven years in equity research at Stevens. Learn what he liked most about equity research and investing, as well as why he eventually decided to start his own company. Enjoy. All right, Carter, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks for having me. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Absolutely. So I, I grew up here in Arkansas. Uh, I went, went to school here as well at the university. I uh, graduated with my undergrad in physics, spent a few years playing music and owning a few small businesses. I uh, did seven years of equity research on the sell side and then another five years on the buy side at a long short equity fund. Uh, and then for the last uh, couple of years, been focused uh, on, on AcreTrader, which is the company that I'm really excited to talk to you about today. Very cool. So in terms of just going back, I'd love to just jump into undergrad. So was physics always a passion of yours? Or what did you kind of, in, were you ever thinking finance as kind of your first, or one year, I, I guess you didn't do finance, you were a small business owner. I'd love to hear about that. And yeah. what led you there? And then specifically, what got you into equity research? Yeah, for, for me, the goal, uh, you know, at least at the onset, was always to own my own business. I think there was a, a moment there where I was confused and thought I wanted to be a doctor. And, uh, and so I'd, I'd been studying uh, biology in school and then switched into business and then ultimately decided, look, I'm going to work for myself forever, which did not come true. Mm -hmm. uh, but, <clears throat> you know, I considered I was going to work for myself for a long time. And, uh, and so I just wanted to study what I'd found the most interest in in school, which, uh, which at that time was physics. So why did you feel like... You, wanted, you knew you wanted to work for yourself. I mean, eventually, this is now true, so you are working for yourself now, but it, it took a while to kind of get back there. So what, was, what drew you to the entrepreneurial um, lifestyle or life? I think I was lucky, mostly lucky in that my, my parents were both uh, entrepreneurs. Um, and, and so I grew up in an entrepreneurial boom and bust type of household. You know, lots of, uh, mm -hmm. lots of job changes and lots of new business ideas being pursued. What did they do? Uh, so uh, what types of business? Uh, banking, oil exploration, like wildcatting oil exploration, nothing, uh, nothing sexy or anything fun like yeah. that. Um, and then uh, my, my mom had a candy business uh, for, for a very long time, actually. Very cool. Okay, so about a half you... dozen other pursuits in there as well. <laughs> so when you came out of school, um, what was your first uh, endeavor? Did, did any of them do well or did it kind of, was it kind of struggle after struggle or what was, what was that like? Yeah, the primary focus after school, I'd been uh, playing and touring around uh, in a band and, and we had a, a diesel, you know, basically this, this uh, big van that we drove around in. What did and, you play? What uh, Guitar mostly uh, and nice. then uh, keyboard as well. So we, we had this van that we drove around in and had converted it to run on vegetable oil, which sounded like this kooky idea of in reality, like, you know, we'd literally pull up to the next town we were playing in, go eat some Mexican food, go out back, ask their permission, go out back and get their used vegetable oil and travel around for free. And when you're in a band living on ramen noodles, that, that tank of gas is pretty meaningful. Uh, and, and so we, we realized at the time, like, hey, this, this could actually be a, a business helping other people to do this. And so turn that into a business and, and that uh, uh, went well for a few years. And then we ultimately exited to uh, a group of local entrepreneurs. How do you turn a business of vegetable oil fuel into a uh 
is it is it the type of engine or something that can handle it or what, what will you it, it was just a, a a secondary fuel system basically so new fuel pumps uh new fuel tank uh in in the car uh to help propel it along so pretty pretty straightforward a couple thousand dollars of, of alterations so nothing crazy um but you know at the end of the day what that meant is i was a, a, a diesel mechanic you know or a fuel systems mechanic for a few years and so where did you tour with the with this van how many other guys or gals a couple yeah, there was uh, four or five of us total, usually, plus a couple, uh, you know, friends running lights or, or soundboard or whatever. And yeah. uh, anywhere from you know, New York to Chicago to, to Colorado was sort of the, uh, the, the boundaries, I guess. And you did that for two years? Did. Uh, at the end of school and then, and then out of school as well. So. so then what? It seems like a complete 180 to then go into equity research. How, how on earth did you manage that? And what drew, what drew you to that? freak accident uh you know had a had a, a friend of a friend that worked at a, a reputable firm called stevens a very well known sort of off wall street uh, private investment bank mm-hmm. uh, and and very conservative in nature a very well run organization and so you know it was sort of a storied company i, I knew about growing up and mm-hmm. had a had a chance opportunity to go take an interview and so bought a corporate finance textbook and probably the only textbook i ever read cover to cover but uh but, you know, chopped through it and went in thinking, oh, I hope, you know, now I know what EBITDA is. I can talk to him about this. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and really they just wanted to explore uh, for, for research. You know, I think the, the, the things that people look for most are, uh, do you like to go learn new stuff and, and go dig around in industries? And that to me really was exciting. And I, I think, uh, you know, the, the, fun, the most fun part of my career there was, was I got to go you know, be in a library every day, basically. Were they, the types of questions I assume were more around of like, what do you like to do or were they more fit fit and behavioral kind of things to see if you enjoyed that or was it like, yeah, I, I, you know, all the above, I, you know, look, and did they ask you to pitch a stock? I should say, uh, they did. I failed terribly at it. Uh, you know, you still got the job, but you still got the job. I did. I interviewed with several research analysts. Uh, the, the first one, uh, great guy that was looking for somebody with real chops and I definitely did not have them. And so it was about a 15 minute interview. Uh, the second person was uh, an internet advertising and you know digital marketing analytics type of analyst, and uh, I had as a as another business that I didn't mention earlier. It was a a, a flaming failure. Uh, was a a website uh, centered around digital marketing, and so I at least had some understanding of industry fundamentals to uh, to visit with him about. So that was a two hour long interview, and I think at the end of the day we we got along well as as people, and that that matters most probably when you're interviewing and both on either side of the table. I say. So it turned into a long interview, more like a conversation. And that was kind of all that was needed. He was like, I want him on my team. And your That's right. career was your, your finance career was launched. Yeah. I, I, I got lucky, you know, but, but I think I, I always remembered uh, and, and, you know, as a team, we worked really well. And so in interviewing others through, throughout my career, uh, always made sure to really pay attention to personality and fit and, uh, you know, curiosity, creativity, uh, the, the things, at least in, in uh, equity research in, in particular, that, that you know, matter more than can you build an, an Excel spreadsheet on day one. Were there certain things you would ask to try and get at that in terms of like curiosity specifically? There are, and I, and I still do. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to learn what people do outside of work uh, mm-hmm. and, and outside of school or outside of their career. <clears throat> and in, in finance, you know, you ask people, what are the last few books you've read, for example? And they'll always name off, you know, the top three or four investing books or critical thinking books. And, uh, and that's cool. Like, that, that's really great that people have that passion. But you want to know that they have other passions and other pursuits as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so maybe, you know, typically I'll, I'll ask people, like, what, what's the last thing you dug in on Wikipedia about? Uh, or what's the mm-hmm. last topic that you became interested in that was not purely finance or, or, or purely related to this job? Right. Interesting. And do people struggle with that or now not so much because now they have the intersection and they talk about. Some, some do, uh, you yeah. know, and, and if, and if they struggle to, mm-hmm. to tell you what they're interested in or, or what they like, uh, that, that's tough for me. Even if like the person genuinely loves finance and they love crunching numbers like that, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but in, in the world of equities, like you've got to also be interested in people and be interested in, in, in businesses and sectors. Uh, and so, yeah. If you love finance, that's great. But like, tell me, you know, tell me about the last time you dug into natural gas markets or, uh, you know, oil's future contango, or uh, you, you pick the industry and the, the problem, but, but you just want to see people that, you know, they have a passion for more than just purely like the CFA questions. 
for sure. So it makes total sense. So, you, I mean, you had a really long run at Stevens. You were there for over seven years, eventually managing director there. Tell me about that progression. What was your day-to-day like kind of when you first started and then how did it evolve over time? I, th- I think out of the gate, um, you know, I, I, I found a strength and that I, I really liked Excel uh, and, and liked macros and, you know, cutting corners and, you know, as, as we all, as I know you talk about a, a, a whole lot, yeah. uh, it's, it's really, really important core skill set. So I focused a lot on that uh, because I sucked at writing. Uh, and so that, that piece of, of writing uh, took, me, took me a lot longer to, to figure out how to, how to convey a, a complex thought into a, uh, into a sentence or, or really ultimately more importantly, a picture. You know, and, and today, uh, and, and as my career progressed, I really moved away from you know, trying to write eloquently to let's do this with crayons. You know, can, can we take some complex theme uh, or, or some complex industry and boil it down to a slide or two uh, with, with pretty pictures? Interesting. So you kind of tried, instead of trying to write eloquently, you, did you have an analyst above you that would help, um, help with the writing and you were kind of doing a lot of the analytics in the background and the, the graphs and the... Thank goodness, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, he, he was, uh, you know, very focused writer. And so uh, our, our skill sets complemented each other pretty well. That's great. That's great. So what, uh, after, you know, you had a really great run, where, where was that? Where, where was the office? Uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is where their, their yeah. primary office is. It's a couple thousand person uh, iBank, so they've got yeah. offices all over, but uh, headquarters and probably half or more of the employees and you, are and you were there. out in Arkansas. Okay. That, and that's right. Rock. Okay. And so tell me a little bit about um, kind of the evolution of your thought process as you kind of approached that final year, maybe even final two years. Were you thinking, hey, I want to go start something on my own? Or at this point, had you started kind of playing with that idea or were you thinking, no, I want to go, I want to go buy side? and start actually, you know, practicing uh, or seeing what I can handle, what I can handle as an investment professional. I, I, the whole time I was there, I, 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 you know, I still today, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. So, uh, you know, it would be unfair for me to, to deny that I thought about other things, but in reality, like I loved the job. I, I liked the people there. Uh, it was a really cool place to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like my boss, his boss, uh, you know, the guys all around me on the floor. So, uh, so it, it wasn't that I was out seeking to leave because I, I, I loved the process and, and the industry we were in and, and what I was doing and the people. So it, it really came down to, uh, I, I'd spent a, a decent amount of time on the short side on, on uh, short selling and, and had uh, made friends with a, a few fund managers that focused on that. And, uh, you know, one of those ultimately said, Hey, we're going to, we're thinking about uh, starting a fund. Would you like to join us? And, uh, and again, it was a, it was a people that, far more than it was anything else. I, I really like these people still do like they're uh, the guys I went to work with uh, mm-hmm. in the fund are still close friends. Uh, but, but that was the, the big deciding factor is uh, I can, I can enjoy this uh, cause I get to do what I want and I'm surrounded by, by good humans. How did you make that determination just through, was it, was it a long conversation the, the courting process of trying to get you to come join them? Was it like a year? Or was it six months? Tell me about that interview slash, you know, why did they target you specifically number one and then why, or why do you think, and then how did you get comfortable with the fact that this is a startup fund? There's some risk here. Uh, there, there's always risk and, and I, I kind of like risk. And so I, I, that was the, that was the whole thing was an easy decision. Let, let me be uh, forward about it. Yeah. Uh, Cause it was just a, a, a new thing to go do. I uh, moved out to where, where you are in San Francisco and I mm-hmm. uh, had a really great five years there. Uh, and so the interview process, was, was fairly straightforward. You know, uh, one of the guys that we were, I was close with, we, he and I had worked really closely on, on a number of stocks. Uh, so that was pretty straightforward because we knew each other. Uh, the other one was uh, this, this very intimidating engineering mindset type of person mm-hmm. uh, who turned out to be a, you know, lovely, lovely human as well. But, but he did dig into me and, you know, show me what you can do. And uh, ultimately a case study is, is the thing that, that it rested on in an industry I knew absolutely nothing about. So that was interesting. And tell me a little bit more about that. Did you have to, was it like, here's a, here's a case in 24 hours to get it back to us kind of thing or what was? Yeah, it was probably a week or two. Uh, and, and it was uh, financial services. Oh gosh. Type of, type of business. Uh, <laughs> it's and I, incredibly I, difficult. Like, cause it's like all, everything's different. Yeah. They, they had six different business lines and, you know, tons and tons of countries and, and all that fun stuff. And so, uh, you know, you, you, I did in that case what, what you should always do, which is phone a friend. 
uh, you know, so start, start picking up the phone and calling people to ask them their opinions on it and how they'd go about the analysis and how they'd think about it. Uh, and that was the, you know, that was the project. And so the, yeah, how did, and initially nights. you said I had worked with this person on stocks. Was this somebody in Stevens that you kind of broke off with? Uh, no, the, the two fund managers I went to go work with uh, had, had previously worked at a large West Coast hedge fund. Got it. And so they were breaking off, starting a new fund, and they they identified you through probably your research, right? They read That's it right. and liked it. Okay. So um, real quick, before we move on to the long, short fund, what about equity research in, in terms of like as a career now? What If you had to say something to the younger listeners, is it still, do you feel like it's still a good place to be in terms of um, I know there was some pressure on it, but some people still just love that job, that, that idea of going to, to the library, like you said, and learning about different sectors. So what, what would you say to those people? Yeah, I think the industry has some, some secular challenges. Uh, I think the industry has, I don't think that the industry has fee compression. Uh, find me an industry that doesn't exist. Uh, you know, it, it, they're rare. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so that's the nature of the beast. And as long as you go in and and you, you work hard and put your head down uh, and put out good, thoughtful product uh, in, in whatever sector of a, of a bank, for example, that you, you want to go work in, yeah. uh, you, you, you should do well individually and, and have a good time at it. And how about pay? Was the, can, do you mind sharing a range of pay from, you know, going from, you know, all the way junior coming in? Obviously, you're in Little Rock, so the cost of living is super low compared to New York. <laughs> but like just to give people a, an idea of like how you progressed over the years there and then, um, and then at the long short fund, obviously in a much higher cost of living area, was mm-hmm. I assume the pay jump was pretty significant. But if you could just give us an idea, it doesn't have to be exact, but just a range from like how it scaled so they get it. Yeah, it's a, out of respect and, and privacy for, for the, the bank and the fund. You know, unfortunately, I'm not going to disclose the pay. What, what I will say is mm-hmm. the great thing about the industry as a whole is it is pay for performance, right? And so I, I was lucky to see, I was lucky to have good performance first and then, and then lucky to see my, my pay. Even on the equity research side, like how did they measure your performance just based on the calls you were making and stuff? Yeah, there was a, a grading matrix, calls okay. and management trips and uh, stock performance and uh, buy side votes. Uh, so, you know, I think that. So they were measuring, there were actual metrics they were, they were measuring on and you had a bonus tied to that. specifically. That's right. And, and I think most banks have, you know, at least some, if not a majority of equity research compensation based on objectivity. There, yeah. There's always subjectivity, no matter, no matter where you work. Uh, there, there's well, yeah, a, I mean, I know for like, uh, bankers coming out that are in like M&A or coverage bankers, their comp can be 100% of it can, or 50% of it could come from bonus, right? And so I'm just trying to get an idea. I know very little about the equity research world because I wasn't in there. Is it more like, a, I assume it's a much smaller bonus, like a 20 to 30, up to 30, 40%, something like that on base? I, 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 you know, for get all the way up. My journey was at a point was probably that, you know, but as a whole uh, throughout my career, I think the, the bonus was was definitely the, the majority or large majority of compensation. Oh, okay. It so. was. Okay. Very cool. I think that's awesome. I think it's better that way. <laughs> I, I totally agree. <laughs> it rewards and, and uh, performance. I'm, I'm happy to take a low upfront compensation and, and trade for eat what you kill. Yeah. And so that you were kind of, that's a good transition, I think, into the long short world where that's even more the case, <laughs> where I feel like the upside is definitely there. Um, as a, um, as kind of an early founding employee, we'll call you, um, were you, um, you don't have to share this, but were you given any carry um, in, as a pretty junior? I mean, well, you weren't really junior because you were seven years, nine years actually out of school at that point. Um, so did they treat you like that? Like how should people think when they're going to a new fund negotiating something like, like carry or, or FIPS? Yeah, the, the, the range is, is very, very wide. And, you know, there, there are compensation studies out there on the industry uh, that will show you just unbelievably wide ranges in terms of what uh, analysts or partners or PMs uh, take home. And, and it's, it's unique to every fund. Uh, but as a whole, you know, again, what, what matters is you show up, you work hard and you perform. Mm-hmm. And, and those things tend to work themselves out with a caveat of you should also make sure to work at a good fund with good people. Uh, and, and I would put the people way, way in front of the fund. Uh, so to, to me personally, dramatically more important to work with people that you like because uh, mm-hmm. you're seeing these people more than your best friends or your, your wife family. or husband or your family <laughs> uh, every day, all day. And so that's the thing at, at the end of you know, your career, uh, it'll, it will, no matter what's in your pocket, uh, what, what matters is what the journey was like and did you have fun on the For journey. Sure. And so 
for sure. And so the, in terms of Stevens, you were loving it there. You love the people there. What got you comfortable enough to kind of leave that behind? Um, was it obviously the people, but like, did, did you feel like you had enough time? So you had a couple week case study, but was it like a long court? Was it like a six month process or was it like a two month process? Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, obviously they, you had some people grill, you had one guy grilling you a little bit um, and the others just to be a little more cordial, but I want to hear just, just so people can understand. And then were you interviewing them a lot? Like, were you pushing back on specifically what their strategy was? It sounds like these people had great track records. So there's a little bit of comfort around that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, and, and I know it wasn't intended, but pushing back isn't a word I would use. I, I wasn't grilling them, but I was definitely interested in how they, you know, uh, how they made the magic, right? And, and uh, how, how the, the sausage got made every day. And, and what it turned, you know, what I learned is it got made through a really, really intense and very deliberate process. And, and that was the piece that, that got me the most excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and frankly, the most comfortable is uh, the, the fund had a, had a structure and they had an approach and we never, uh, you know, broke that or went, went around that. And as a result, uh, you know, things tend to, things tend to work out when you, when you do what you set out to do and, and stay true to your, your laurels or your, your plans. And tell me a little bit about the transition. So when you made the jump, was it, a, was it tough to kind of switch into that rigorous process or you feel like what, what had inequity research had prepped you really well for that, for that long short? I think the, the process is the same. It, it, you know, the, the product is, differs. It's altered somewhat. Uh, doesn't have to look as pretty. The writing doesn't matter. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, but, but at the end of the day, the, the core function of the job, uh, go understand a, a, an industry, a company, uh, a management team, incentives, uh, potential outcomes, you know, and, and build a financial model and, and a, you know, some sort of presentation or, or summary of that. Uh, it was, was, was always the case in both jobs. And, and in fact, at the fund, I mean, that, that ended we every investment was backed by a 30 to 100 page investment memo uh, so we we put together very real powerpoints ultimately uh, and so were these uh was it more was it more like a long short fund where there are fewer positions but more concentrated and heavily researched that's right that's right and would you say that um when you first joined were you like one of three people like the two founders and you or was it so really oh wow so it's really small yeah and, and, then, guys- and we we uh another great uh, person and close friend joined uh, just, just after I did. So very quickly there. Uh, and then we hi- hired analysts, you know, call it two to three year analysts through, uh, you know, and continue to. So what about like your day to day? So obviously you were doing a lot of heavy research and getting those reports written so that you could make a decision. But I'm curious, like when you got to the end, so like you spend all this time, <laughs> what if you get to the end and you don't feel very strongly in one direction, you feel like it's pretty priced the securities are priced pretty appropriately. Do you have to start all the way back over again? And how many times are you doing that before you feel super strongly about a specific position? Yeah. If, if you get to the very end and you don't love it, then just don't do it. Uh, don't do it. Yeah. Set a price, right? If you, if you decide you love the company and you want to own it at some point or mm-hmm. inversely, uh, this thing is, I uh, got some real hair on it, some problems, yeah. uh, but you don't love the, you know, the, the setup, uh, then you set targets and you, 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 write it down on paper. I think that was the really important part for us of uh, creating these ridiculous slide decks was you had to memorialize your thesis. And so right. uh, you couldn't lie to yourself later with thesis creep. Like we all suffer from it. You know, it's a, it's a human <laughs> and, uh, thing to do. And so uh, I, I continue to do it all the time, despite, uh, you know, dozen years plus of trying not to. Uh, but, but that's, that's the important part is, is at the end of that process, if you don't love it, move on. Very cool. And, so, and if you don't love it halfway through, quit you know, and stop, yeah, stop so working but, on that but, way, jump, move on. but yeah, what if you're looking for a short though? So if you don't love it, that's a good thing. You keep going. <laughs> that's right. well, if, if you don't love the, the, investment. Right, the idea, of course, right. of course. Uh, so, so you're kind of going through this. What would you say in terms of the percentage of the, all the work or the, the ideas you looked at actually became positions you put on? A small minority. I think rarely would you, like that. yeah, if, if that, I mean, rarely would you get all the way to doing a full month's work, uh, you know, and then at the very end of that, say no, that, that certainly still happens. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, but, but usually after a day or two of reading transcripts and, you know, calling pool equipment distributors or whatever it may be, <laughs> uh, and, and realizing, okay, this, this actually isn't as, as exciting as I thought, then move on. Uh, Got it. T- time is your most precious resource. Very cool. 
So it sounds like you had a lot of success there. Um, AUM grew significantly, obviously an initial fund isn't that big. Are you, are you um, able to share kind of what the initial AUM was for the first? Route? Yeah. Initial um, first, first was, was, yeah, I think it ultimately, you know, out, out of the gate or pretty early in its, in its life in the first year. Or so it was in the hundreds of millions okay. uh, and, and scaled up effectively from there. Great. And so you were there for a good five years. Um, sounded like you had a lot of success. You guys are doing well. What prompted kind of the, to finally to put your stake in the ground again and go to the startup route again? Yeah, a couple of things. One was family. I'm, I'm from here in Arkansas and I yeah. had a, had a uh, dad in, in rather ill health and mm. sort of my, my best friend. And so I wanted to get closer to him. Uh, so that was a, a big driver for me. Uh, beyond that, um, my dad and I historically bought and sold a bunch of farmland together. And I had a neighbor uh, come to me in San Francisco and say, hey, I would like to buy some too. And it's like, well, we'll go online and do it. It's a multi-trillion dollar asset class and it's put up incredible historical performance and uh, went looking and there was nothing there. And so there was a, an aha moment of, hey, here's something that, you know, uh, when I do move home to be, be with my dad, we can work on together. Because uh, you know, he's a backstory. He's also a, a farmer. I said banking and oil earlier, but primarily a farmer. He must uh, love this, so working, working with his son. Yeah, we're uh, having a blast. It's amazing. Um, to you, so... Tell me about the exit though from the from the long short fund. Was it? I, I obviously your it was um, reasons with family and all that stuff. So I'm sure they were understanding. But um, was it ever? Do you ever feel like you could go back if something if if for whatever reason things don't work out or or you want to get back in? Do you ever do you ever have that fear? Because I think some people have if, that fear when they jump. You know. Yeah. If if I wanted to go back, um, and I always do. I mean, I, I miss it every day. And so if I wanted to go back, I would hope they would have me. Yeah. Uh, is, is the way I would, I would put that. It was, it was a very amicable uh, uh, separation. And you know, they, I was, again, just very lucky to work with good people. And so they, they fully understood the situation. So. For sure. And then so for specifically in terms of how you kind of did this, you know, had the setup, you said you had that conversation of you started having, you had the aha moment when you went to look for, okay, well, where can you buy farmland online? And it really didn't exist for this multi-trillion dollar asset class was there a lot of homework that went into like getting things ready and prepped um, before you jumped or was it like, I'm just going to jump. I'm moving to Fayetteville where it's the cost of living. I can, I've done so well. I can just relax and I don't have to worry about it. I have good runway here um, to, to make this thing work or what was your yeah, thought process? Because people, pretty... people freak out, like making that jump, you had a big advantage of going to, you know, obviously back to where it's, you're not living in San Francisco anymore and, you know, Bay area. So <laughs> you could, you're not spending uh, you know, $4,000 a month on an apartment, but right. you know, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I, I think the, the two were fairly independent. Uh, the, the idea of moving home was, was definitely concrete. Uh, you know, and, and the business was, was second to that. Mm -hmm. uh, the business has, has now become, uh, you know, very, very uh, focal in front of, front of mind and you know, what I spend most waking hours doing. Uh, but but having a blast uh, working on it. So tell me about that. The initial days. It's been about a couple of years since you started it. Tell me about the little the evolution of Acre Trader. What happened with the initial kind of first few months as you started kind of the brand and I love the branding. I love the name by the way. Thank you. Uh, very well done. Tell me a little bit about um, your first few transactions and how you even got it up and how you started getting the inventory and um, the the difficulty of a two sided marketplace. Why don't you give people just a little summary of what it even is so they know. Absolutely. So AcreTrader is a real estate investing platform. So it just makes it easy for to go online and buy shares of farmland and earn passive income. Uh, you, you can literally invest in farmland, you know, starting with five, ten, twenty thousand um, dollars in minutes online. So, uh, so we've we've built a platform platform on the same rules as crowdfunding, basically, uh, to to allow people to come get access to this this asset class, which we're convinced is is pretty incredible. Do we, do you still have to be, uh, do you have to be accredited to do it or is that, are those rules changing soon or? Yes. So you, you have to be accredited today. Uh, the, the rules of the definition of accredited is evolving positively for investors mm -hmm. uh, and, and especially for people that are in, in the investing industry to include them, even if they don't have the, the threshold of income or, or net worth. Uh, we are the, also the jobs act. The uh, That's correct. That, that was what initially created. This was the jobs act. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, in summary, the jobs act made it, uh, more approachable to securitize smaller assets. So right. if, if you wanted to previously securitize something and go raise money from people you didn't know, uh, it, 
took hundreds of thousands of dollars in an S1 and going public to do so, um, right. and or you know, other wildly rigorous uh, situations. And the Jobs Act just reduced the barriers so that you could go out and raise capital for a million dollar um, piece of property or, or business or whatever that may be. From thousands of investors. From That's right. That's right. right. So, but tell me what's, is the, are they still not allowing non-accredited? What's the, like, why are they not allowing that? I thought that was patent from, you know, there's yeah. like WeFunder and these other like uh, startup uh, ecosystems right. that are doing this. So tell me why that still isn't allowed. There are different components of the Jobs Act and different uh, exemptions from, from regulations that you can operate within. Uh-huh. And so the one that we and, and most, uh, that we see most of the larger crowdfunding platforms operate under uh, yeah. or, or what's called uh, the regulation or the 506C or 506B okay. exemption from, from Reg D. Uh, so those are accredited investors or, or very few uh, non-accredited. There are you other are able, You are able to advertise. Is the we are, that's right. Uh, okay. There are other alternative structures. Uh, you may have seen Fundrise, for example, that's a, uh, basically a, a REIT, an e-REIT. Okay. And those can be marketed to, with pre-registration. So upfront investment in time, those can be, uh, you know, can allow in non-accredited investors as well. And so we're working on a product in that realm uh, to, to bring on non-accredited investors. We, we did not set out to only make farmland inv- uh, investing available to accredited investors. Got it. Okay. So tell me a little bit about just initially that the early days, the first few months, and then tell me how it's evolved. So early on, uh, it was about building an MVP. So, you know, I did a bunch of survey work, uh, you know, through Google and SurveyMonkey to, mm-hmm. to go understand uh, investors' appetite for farmland, the specific asset class we were working on. And what we learned is there was a ton of interest, but people didn't know what farmland was. Like, why would I invest? That sounds awful and boring. And, and I think with a little bit of education of, you know, here's this long-term compounding asset class returning, you know, that's returned about almost 12% a year for the last 30 years. Uh, in a highly consistent, unlevered, low volatile manner. Uh, you know, once you show people a few charts, they go, oh, wow, all right, how did I miss this one? Uh, and, and, and so I think, you know, one was really about building proper educational materials. Obviously, you, you never overpromise. You want to make sure to be crystal clear as to, uh, you know, how things are, are, are built and what the understanding you're providing people of, of an asset. Mm-hmm. Can I, can uh, I stop you for a second? And you say the 12% please. return is, is a lot of that the capital. How much of that is really capital appreciation versus the cash flows of the, of the farmland return? It's been roughly 50, 50. I think it leans a little heavy to appreciation. Uh, yep. So you, you nailed it. You make money two ways, right? The, the asset yeah. appreciates or has always, or has historically for the last 30 years appreciated underneath you. Yeah. And then on top of that, uh, the farmer pays you rent. So you get some cash income a year. Yeah. Uh, so, so, the combination of those two are, are roughly even uh, with appreciation maybe kicking in a little more. Got it. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. No, no. Great, <laughs> great question. Uh, uh, it's, it's fun fun getting asked those types of questions. Uh, <laughs> it's all we think about every day. Yeah. It's farmland. So, so, you know, the early product was, you know, build something to educate people uh, and build something that's easy to use. Both of those are really hard to do. It took us some yes. time. Uh, built an MVP, which is a minimum viable product. Uh, so here's the basic technology. Uh, put it online to see if there's interest, and hey, there was a lot of interest. You know, people people were were pumped about it, uh, and so then it was, all right, we've got the interest. Now let's go take some real time, raise some capital, uh, and build a real product before we, we truly roll this out and launch it, uh, which we launched just about a year ago. Now, mm-hmm. uh, but we spent an inordinate amount of time making sure to get our systems right, our security right, mm-hmm. uh, the ease of use correct. Uh, we're we're dealing with people's money at the end of the day. It's a pretty emotional thing. If yeah. we screw that up, uh, we're not going to be around for very long. So, so tell me a little bit about um, the fundraising process and what you had to show in terms of traction or interest that got investors um, comfortable enough to write a check. Was it like, uh, would you consider it like pre-seed? And obviously you didn't need a you know, $10 million round necessarily to, <laughs> to get to, to get to the, from MVP to the first launch, but to beta, but I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so, and, and we are in process of, of closing a, a larger investment round today uh, that, that mm-hmm. we'll be out talking about soon and are excited about. But uh, right. for, for the early capital, we used a, a safe round, simple agreement for future equity, which, mm-hmm. which acts like convertible debt, basically, a, a really simple six-page convertible note, if you will, uh, yep. without, without a coupon uh, or, or a lot of the other uh, Just a discount. difficult features. That's Just right. Just a sort of discount. Yeah. A, a discount or a valuation cap. So, so yeah. we chose to provide our investors both. So that, you know, just to make sure they were um, in at the right place. And um, uh, so let's see. So we went out with that to go raise money. It was, it was really 
uh, execs in, in agriculture and technology that, and, and banking that I'd worked with over the years mm -hmm. uh, that, that provided, you know, uh, luckily for us, provided some of that early vote of confidence of, hey, we, we see the addressable market, we see the, the product market fit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're, we're interested in, in, you know, playing a part in this. Uh, since then, yeah, we've got to show some real traction. And so uh, we've, been, we've been grinding away here for, for the last year since launching it, at getting that uh, to occur. And we're now in that uh, hockey stick period of uh, execution here. Right? It's, it's, we've, we've moved, I haven't moved, but transitioned quite a bit from build and build and build to, oh my gosh, now we've got to uh, think, about, think about managing all of this and, and, and volume, scale it up. Right. And so it's, uh, it's been a really fun exercise and, and we were lucky in that we've just got an incredible team of people here that are all thoughtful about processes and, and scalability and automation. And so we've, uh, yeah, so far so good. That's awesome. How big is your team now? Just, uh, we're approaching 20. Uh, not, not all those are, are full time. Yep. And uh, have you been able to, I guess, is it heavy on like the developer side still? Um, I assume. It, it, almost half is development. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it sounds very similar to my team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I walked into this knowing exactly nothing about software development. In fact, today still, I think I took a Python class, you know, when I lived in San Francisco, but yeah, uh, but really uh, it was for finance and, and, you know, still, still have very little, little development chops. Uh, so has that, has that been the hardest part as being a non-technical founder kind of just finding the right developers or how did you, how did you even find them? Yeah. I, again, I got lucky and I, I know I keep, keep saying that, but uh, it's been a good I don't run believe it anymore. So I don't believe it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, it was pretty simple. So I, you know, sort of built this business plan, built a slide deck, uh, went and hired uh, some, some legal counsel to uh, help navigate, you know, is this actually doable? Uh, and come to find out it's, it was very hard and still is very hard to, to make sure we, we do everything exactly right uh, mm -hmm. per, per regulations and uh, some of which are not exactly black and white. So we just yeah. decided to you know, never get in the gray area. Uh, so that took a while. Then, you know, as it was fleshing that out and running the, the idea by some friends, uh, you know, went out and, and looked for a developer. And so built a list of 100 websites in fintech that I, that I liked. Uh, then went through that with a fine-tooth comb and just Excel, right? So then you rank them, you go through the fine-tooth comb and say, all right, here are the top 20. Uh, went and found their lead developers, even on, either on the website or through LinkedIn, and just started uh, reach, cold reaching out to those people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, boiled it down to five. One of them uh, really, really liked, and we got along well. And, uh, and he was clearly very good at what he did, so... Uh, that was that was that hired him. Then he was like, he's kind of the CTO, lead developer. That's whatnot. right. He's, he's the lead, lead developer or, or product manager is what we would call him. So. Got it. Okay. So, what's I guess well, given given that it's like almost like a two sided marketplace, right? You need the land being listed, and you need the the buyers coming in to to purchase the land. What has been? There's always one side tends to trail the other. Sometimes it goes like this, but what, what has kind of been the, the path so far? I know it's been kind of only live like publicly for about a year, but what have you seen? Yes. So the, the demand I guess, side. I guess wrong, by the way, the first time I talked to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're all a challenge, right? We're, it's, it's really running two separate businesses that are, that are the same thing or, or mm -hmm. depend on each other, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, the demand side is pretty focused on, on marketing and, and data science, right? It's, it's about, you know, customer acquisition cost and lifetime value and the, the relationship between those two metrics and, and going out and getting the message out there and doing so uh, uh, in a capital efficient manner. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, and again, there we, we've got just really great people focused on that problem every day to go out and, and solve that and, and let the world know that we're here. Uh, on the supply side, it's, it's much lumpier. It's, it's uh, you know, pretty reliant upon relationships and making sure that uh, you're doing the right deals in the right places. And so that, uh, you know, is run by a guy here named Garrett McClinic. Uh, he previously managed a few hundred million dollars of farmland. So Perfect. knows, you know, I, I'm a redneck, but this guy knows dirt in a way or soil in a way that, that I, I never will. Uh, and, and his team for that matter as well. Uh, so, so they're focused every day on going out and finding farmland. And at this point, we're speaking to hundreds of farmers. And is, he, is he, I'm curious, is he a, an employee of you or is he a partner? Yes. How, did that, how does that work? Yeah, employee. Yeah, he's, I mean, we're all employees in the, the day. He's a, he's certainly a stakeholder. Every, yeah. everyone here is a stakeholder in the business. So. Yep. Very cool. And so the, the goal here is, is, I mean, it's a, like you said, there's, you have a lot of runway or a lot of play, a lot of, do you feel like you're going to be able to, is there a certain point where you see where it's, where it's uh, profitable or you're already profitable? What's the, what's the kind of seeing kind of how you're scaling is, is there a good runway there? 
There, there is. There, there's great visibility and profitability. Our, our unit yeah. economics are good. good. Uh, I think as a, as a young company, uh, and especially in a network business model, uh, we, we want to grow quickly and grow responsibly. And so mm-hmm. thus we are, we are okay with using some additional outside capital and, and running at a, at a net loss for a, a time uh, to, to scale it up faster. Uh, again, again, in a responsible way. We, we know without a doubt if the investors on our platform do not have a good experience or if the one in 100, one in 200 farms that we put up there uh, mm-hmm. is a bad investment for them, uh, we, we won't be around for very long. And, and obviously our intention is the opposite. So do you feel like um, there is risk around timing? So like as you scale, let's say for whatever reason, the asset class, I don't know why this would happen, but there's drought or there's whatever, whatever have you. And a lot of them, maybe instead of two out of a hundred turning into negative investments, it's 20. Um, is, does that keep you up at night? What keeps you up at night in, in terms of, is it, is it that, is it something else? Yeah, I, I think, um, and, and I want to return to the, the negative of the investment, uh, but for us as a platform, it's also making sure we have investments on the platform. Uh, right. and, and we've decided, and, and if I were to show you our, our chart of, uh, momentum of funding fundraising on the on the platform you'll see a couple flat points uh, we went three weeks in December without a single listing uh, we had several right there at the at the edge uh, about to put them up and found yeah. a small problem we didn't like and so you know we would rather forego the revenue than have our investors uh, have a bad experience as a result of that uh, offensive level of diligence and underwriting uh, as we've talked about diligence earlier I, I tend to be pretty uh, uh, you know pretty forceful with it uh, as is the rest of the team here um, as a result of that, you know, we, we do hope that, that our farms perform very well over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, in terms of the asset class and, and downturns and what could cause investors to lose money, like, like they absolutely can. They, they know that. What's, what's fascinating is, is we're usually going in without leverage. Uh, so you don't have the amplification up, up or down uh, yeah. in terms of returns. It's, it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where with no leverage, uh, a piece of productive ground suddenly becomes not productive. Uh, aside from somebody dumping a bunch of barrels of nuclear waste, uh, it's, it's tough to come up with, with that scenario. Right. Um, and, you know, but bear markets do occur, right? Uh, and, and so the most recent example of that would be Nebraska. And I'm, I'm going to botch the numbers here, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, roughly. So Nebraska. Uh, I love this tw- stuff. It's super interesting to me. Just like hearing about this asset because you're educating me and you're probably educating a lot of the listeners as well. Oh, it's, farmland. So it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fun stuff. And, and yeah. a lot of this, all, not a lot, all this information and then, you know, orders of magnitude more are on our website at, at acretrader.com. So you can okay. always go uh, as much as you want to read. We, we got it there and cool. call us anytime. But, but uh, uh, the, the bear market story, Nebraska. So through 2014 or 15, they had this massive run up in land prices there. Um, mm. 100, 200% uh, jump in, in prices. And then from 14 uh, through 19, there was a five-year downturn in prices. Uh, one, because there was heavy speculation. Two, uh, because people in many parts of the state shouldn't have been buying farmland anyway because it's sitting on an aquifer that's drying up. Uh, something that you know, we wouldn't uh, have pursued, you know, wouldn't have even opened the file on. Uh, right. but, but there was a lot of capital that came into the state very quickly. Why? So, uh, good returns was the big one. Uh, so... Uh, it kind of fed the good returns, fed more returns, fed more returns kind of thing. That's right. So, so the yields were really good uh, for a number of years, even in the bad places. Yeah. And, and then commodity prices were really on a tear, uh, you know, through 2014. And so uh, people were making hand over fist. So farmers were buying their neighbor's farm. Uh, investors were coming in. Uh, more farmers were buying their neighbor's farm, which was really the, the big driver there. Mm-hmm. And so after this huge run up, you've since seen a bear market. Uh, and it's the the best and most extreme isolated bear market that we can find uh, in the data in the last 30 years in the U.S. Mm. Uh, I keep saying 30 years. It's because that's the, the time period through which we have the, the best uh, data. Measuring, measuring stick and information. And yeah. I can go back to another bear market if you want to further delve into the. Oh, yeah. Tell me what was another uh, one. But, but I, but I want to finish up on Nebraska. Yeah, sorry, so, go ahead. so 14 and 19, five-year bear market. Prices came down 17% in the end. Uh, sorry if I script the numbers, but yeah. we're, we're roughly on, on point. End to end, on a nominal basis, the investors still made money. Because even though the prices of the land came down, you were running with no leverage. And on the other side, the farmer was still paying your rent check every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you had a cash yield in, in pocket. So you sell the land today at a 17% loss on principal uh, on, the, on the, the core asset, mm-hmm. but you had made a uh, you know, 20% give or take on, on the cash rent, uh, mm-hmm. 4% over five years. And so 
So in the end, you, you in that bear market still came out okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, it's so tell me what like the insti- what's going on with institutions? What's why why aren't they? And it's just because it's too decentralized. To uh, what do they call it? The um, scattered. I can't remember the word. Yeah, it, it's, you know what I'm saying. Part, it's part too, of it. it, it I think like it, there's it, no roll up strategy here. <laughs> or there is, and so so interestingly, they are here. Uh, so uh, it, pure institutional capital. So so private equity uh, yeah. capital in the last ten years has gone from three billion of exposure in farmland to thirty billion. Okay. Still, still tiny. It's a three trillion dollar asset class. So, right. A point of it is professionalized now. What about what about in the U.S.? How much is that? That's, in that's so. Yeah, globally, uh, farmland is about nine trillion. So, I'm just nine. speaking to the U.S. market. U.S. Okay, so Thanks it's it's still only a still only a point. That's right. On on top of that, there's then family offices, which are much more difficult to measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some large endowments, uh, some pension funds, churches, uh, and then family offices that have been buying hand over fist. I think. The, the most notable in the press anyway has been the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation mm. uh, buying very large tracts and deploying hundreds of millions of capital uh, into farmland. Uh, they, they see it the same as we do. It's a, you know, it, it, it's, it seems to be at least a, a good store of wealth, uh, you know, a good, a good preservation so, mechanism. So tell me, is the bear market, the, t- the 15 to 20% down trend we've had in the markets in the last, what, two weeks? Is that good or bad for you? We have seen a, a marked improvement in our website traffic. I'll, I'll say that. So, so <laughs> I, I think in the last week, uh, maybe I'll uh, go buy traffic. farmland. <laughs> hey, there you go. In the last week, I think our website traffic's up thirty-five percent week over week. Uh, wow. So that's a that's a pretty meaningful jump. Uh, you know, and fear and panic is never good. And we don't want anybody to invest on the website out of fear and panic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do, you know, see that uh, market volatility highlights to people. I wonder if there are other assets out there that are less volatile. Uh, and, and we definitely think that farmland is one of those. It's really interesting. It's almost like uh, you're getting the hard asset underneath it with no leverage, but almost like, but it's, could you equate it to a high yield bond, but safer? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, and, I and, and how, lo- how long, how long before you think, like if you were to reach scale, wouldn't that, inherently drive prices up to the point where the the investment like if people are late to it and there's other cop let's say there's other copycats that are coming out to to copy mm-hmm. what you're doing and maybe they're a little less stringent That's on fair. the on the uh, <laughs> we've seen that on the due diligence front and people are running you know into this asset class um you know let's say retail investors become savvy about it and they start kind of piling in where do you see there being a point where it can't absorb the three trillion or so? Where do you see like at, at one trillion? Um, yeah, it, that, you know, we're a long way away. You know, I, I think right now fifty to one hundred billion dollars of farmland transacts every year. We, we think uh, okay. so. You know, even if we're taking down a billion dollars a year, uh, we're we're still a, a tiny player in the market. Uh, that, that's absolutely our goal uh, is is to be there. But uh, yeah, that that does not seem to have a discernible impact on, on prices. Uh, I, I want to circle back to your bond, your uh, bond yes. question as well. Uh, Cause it's, it's a fascinating one. Yeah. I do personally think about it as a bond. I, I invest, uh, you know, personally uh, in the farms on our platform under the same terms as our, our website users. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's the way I look at it is, you know, here is a, uh, you know, more like a, a tips or something where you have, you know, there is correlation to inflation. It's the one thing uh, farmland is correlated to decently is inflation. Mm-hmm. Everything else, like, S&P, it's almost exactly zero in terms of correlation, but, uh, but, but it does over time, you, you have some inflation hedge there. Yeah. Uh, so so that's, that's helpful to think about. Um, and and as, as a bond, if you're thinking about investing in a bond, you're, you're backed by a government or backed by a company. Uh, here, we're backed by a, a hard asset that produces something that unless we all de- die, we will need, right? Uh, yeah. No matter what happens in the world, we have to eat. And, and that's a pretty comforting thing to know about farmland as, as an investor is we're, we're going to need the soil for a very long time. Uh, I'm surprised that with technology and with the improvements in output per whatever that we haven't seen the cash, the cash on cash, you know, or, or at least the appreciation flatten. Mm-hmm. Um, that's surprising to me that there hasn't been any sort of, you know, no massive bear markets where like there is maybe, maybe it's because you don't have the data all the way back, but maybe once, machinery became much more prevalent. Um, it's, it, I don't it's know. A, 
Yeah. So, so for the actual underlying prices, we do have the data going much further back. It's the yeah. rent that's tough to put together. Yeah. So we, we can see the long-term appreciation trends and over 50 years, the appreciation, just, just half of the income component, right? Or half yeah. of the IRR component. Yeah. Uh, the appreciation has been about 6% over the last 50 years. It's amazing. Uh, and you, you bring up a really great point, uh, which is yield, not, not income yield, but, uh, but crop yield. Crop yield, yeah. Uh, and, and that is a, an up and to the right chart. Uh, so, you know, you got supply and demand, right? So we have so many mouths to feed in the world and that's growing every day uh, yeah. in a pretty rapid clip. We have the amount of farmland and that's shrinking every day. We lose three acres a minute in the United States of farmland. And why uh, is that? Mostly development. Development, okay. Uh, cities are growing. We, we, we're using more and more land. So, okay. so the, the basic economics are really easy to understand. Growing demand, limited and shrinking, you know, very finite and shrinking supply. And productivity is not keeping up with that. You got it. So, so that's the other, you know, it's supply and demand equation. That's the other big thing is productivity, crop yield in our case. Yeah. Uh, it, it saw a big jump uh, around, you know, mechanization, saw a big jump uh, around genetic improvements uh, and, and input improvements. So, so application, smart application of fertilizers yeah. and, uh, and, you know, has continued to, to curve upward for, for a really long time in a consistent manner. Uh, to, just to feed the world, We've got a, uh, and the stat's five years old, but roughly uh, double our output, uh, our, our crop output in the next, uh, through 2050, so the next 30 years. So we need a hell of a lot of improvement in, in crop yields just to keep up. And, and even then, you still have the demand issue of, of the amount of uh, farmland shrinking out there. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. Uh, it's almost like a little math, mathematical model you could put together in terms of trying to get to your underlying. It sounds like the tailwinds behind the, the asset class are pretty strong, uh, based we, on what you're telling me. We would firmly agree with that. <laughs> Even with the genetic, um, non-organic, no, just kidding, non-GMO. <laughs> so yeah. Um, that's, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other, yeah. I, I, we're here in San Francisco, so you know, as you can imagine, the Whole Foods crowd and the, the genetic—it's—it's it's very um, the organic crowd here is very strong. It, it brings up a fascinating, uh, yeah, uh, not conflict, but the yields of organic are far less right uh, on a, on a per acre basis than the yields of, of genetically modified crops. So, in theory, if the world moved to 100% organic tomorrow, uh, we wouldn't have enough food uh, right. because you, you need to use more space to grow organic. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, the genetic modified, all that stuff that's more resistant to, to parasite to, you know, um, can really dramatically increase yield, I assume. So, uh, that's right. And, and yeah. I, I, again, I'm not, I'm, we're not anti, uh, or, or pro no, I eat organic, organic or GMO. I have my uh, kombucha I'm, here. I'm very much yeah, in the Bay area. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we, we just did an organic farm on the platform, a conversion farm where we're helping the, the farmer to, uh, cool. to bridge it into organic. So, so we're, uh, even from a pure financial return perspective, we're, we're believers. Very cool. Anything else, anything you would tell your younger self or the listeners, the young listeners out there in terms of career, in terms of startups, anything um, that you'd like to share before we call it? Or about the startup in general that I, that I didn't cover that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I think the, the big one is don't worry. Uh, show up to work, you know, and, and get there first and leave last. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but worrying does no one any good. Uh, and I think probably earlier in my career, I, I did a lot of scenario analyses and a lot of thinking and worrying about what was going to come out the other side. And in reality, you know, as long as you work hard and, and keep trying, uh, you, know, you, you can stumble upon some luck every now and then. Great. I love that. We'll end there. Thanks so much, Carter, for joining. Thank us. you. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time. Thank you.